Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. episode of Sub Rosa, I speak to David Gartensteinos and Nina Benzito from Valens Global. We talk about technology adoption and organizational learning by both terrorist groups and regular commercial startups. This is quite a big episode and one I've been particularly excited about for a while. We first discuss a new report produced by David and Nina's organization on the use of technology by violent non-state actors, such as terrorist groups, drug cartels, or insurgent organizations. In that part of the discussion, we look at remotely planned terrorist attacks, the use of commercial drones by violent non-state actors, as well as cryptocurrencies and artificial intelligence. We then turn the conversation to Balance Global itself, which is a startup in the national security space. Nina, as the Chief Operating Officer, tells us about how Valens Global adopts technology and engages in organisational learning. As part of this discussion, we talk about how running your own organisation can give insights into how other organisations are run, including violent organisations, and we discuss how the academic field of terrorism studies hasn't focused a whole lot on organisational learning. We also talk about broader national security debates and how the so-called marketplace of ideas can be quite dysfunctional and how startups in this area can either help address some of these problems in the field or, in fact, risk reproducing these problems themselves. I should mention that this is the first Sub Rosa episode ever that we've recorded through Skype, so there are a couple of patches with some sound problems, particularly in the first 15 minutes or so, unfortunately, but it clears up afterwards. And this episode was recorded a bit over two months ago on the 11th of October, so the main report we discuss is now available online. And the episode goes for about 90 minutes. Enjoy! Hello, David and Nina. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, First, please just tell us about yourselves and what you do. Of course. Um, I'm happy to start. Um, So I am actually originally from Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's where I was born and raised. Um, I ended up moving to the United States to go to college. I got my degree in psych and international affairs, and I ended up going straight to a master's degree in security studies. And I started my career as an analyst in in the field of security studies. Very quickly, I realized that uh, that was not my calling. My calling was uh, more in the business side, but I still had a lot of academic curiosity about uh, this field and I wanted to figure out how can I work as a businesswoman and stay connected to something that academically I find very interesting. And then I was lucky enough to get connected to the beat through a very close friend of mine and I joined Balance Global and I've been with Balance for a little over two years now and I am currently uh, the COO of the company. Thank you. That's fantastic. And just to clarify, COO is Chief Operating Officer? Correct. Excellent. And David? And I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Valence Global. I founded it about five years ago in August of 2014. Before that, I'd been working as an analyst and scholar in the field, uh, studying terrorism and violent non-state actors for about a decade full-time. Uh, with a few different organizations I've been with, uh, most prominently working at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is a DC-based think tank, but I'd also 
taught at Georgetown and held some other positions. Uh, and I started Valens for a variety of reasons, but the main one was I felt that the field could do better than it had analytically. I felt that there was something that I, I was able to add, and I wanted to create the kind of organization where I really would want to work. Uh, and forming an organization and building it is <laughs> an amazingly involved task, but it's been really rewarding. And uh, I waited a little while before paying myself a salary and coming on board full, you know, full-time, dedicating 100% of my time there. I think I waited a little bit too long, but now I'm all in with Valens and the enterprise that we're building and find the work that I do here really rewarding. Excellent. So I'm going to ask you both about Valens quite a lot um, in this interview. So as discussed earlier, um, we're going to have two focuses. The first is going to be a new report. Valens has produced on violent non-state actors as deadly early adopters of technology. And then secondly, I want to talk about Valens itself because um, I've heard you, David, mention a number of times about how running your own organization has kind of given you insights into um, armed organizations and how they function. Um, and I want to ask a lot about that and also simply about Valens itself because I follow Valens quite closely. Um, I remember coming across your work, David, long before you founded Valens. We followed each other on Twitter. These were sort of the days of the blogging website um, Gunpowder and Lead and um, Twitter Fight Club and those number of things. And seeing your own path and the sort of progress of the broader field of not simply terrorism studies, but the studies of kind of civil war and insurgencies and national security and everything has been really interesting. So I'm gl really glad to finally get you onto the podcast and very glad to uh, meet you, Nina, and to get to ask you a lot of these questions too. I'm going to start for the first part of this, talking to you, David, about a new report that you've co-authored with Matt Shear and David Jones. The title of the report is Violent Non-State Actors as Deadly Early Adopters. Your report looks at armed organizations, such as insurgencies, terrorist groups, drug cartels, and others, and how they adopt new technologies for violent purposes. So firstly, what motivated you and your team to produce this report? I've been doing some work for uh, several years on organizational learning as it affects violent non-state actors. And uh, this is part of a, a broader project. Ultimately, there'll be a book from Columbia University Press that comes out probably next year, though who knows with the lag time for academic publishing, uh, which looks at uh, jihadist organizations specifically. But in studying jihadist organizations and, and comparing them to other groups, to cartels, to insurgencies, to criminal organizations, what we found was that there was a common pattern, a pattern in which they almost mimic the life cycle of a startup firm and how startup firms introduce new technologies to the market. You know, it's very common for startup firms to uh, basically put forward what they call the MVP or the minimum viable product. And the plan is to see how it intersects with the market and then to iterate on it. Uh, basically, understanding how consumers relate to it, understanding that the initial product is not going to be very good, with their focus being not on creating a great product out the gate, but rather pivoting the product constantly as it intersects with the market. Now, obviously, getting a technology and selling it on a market is different than using technologies to kill or to um, facilitate illegal activities. But I think that, that a lot of the principles are very similar. And the process of VNSA as violent non-state actors adopting these new technologies looks a lot like startup firms. One analogy we use a lot at Valens is comparing violent non-state actors to startup firms in the political organizing space. 
And so we've done this, the, the study that you mentioned uh, was written for Canada's Department of National Defense. We've done a few projects for them um, and actually are engaged in another right now. And to me, this seemed like one of the most important things to look at paradigmatically. Your report examines three key examples of technology adoption by violent non-state actors. You look at what you call virtual plotting, their use of drones, and some potential future scenarios involving artificial intelligence and cryptocurrencies. Let's discuss each of these in turn. First, what is virtual plotting? What do you mean by that? Virtual plotter is a new model that was enabled by two different technological trends. One of them is social media. The social media, in contrast to the web previously, puts you in constant contact with people. Um, you know, the web has gone through a few evolutions, and people tab those evolutions uh, in different ways. Um, I look at it as Web 1.0, which was the read-only web, to Web 2.0, the read-write web, blogs, for example, and finally to the social web, where it's, it's you, the consumer of information that is in itself the product. Uh, that's a significant change in the web, and we are all familiar with social media, but it's had a revolutionary impact. Now, what that allows a violent non-state actor, especially terrorist groups like ISIS to do, is to be in constant contact with possible recruits and to scope out people who might be radicalized or drawn to the cause or inspired to carry out activities on their behalf. Uh, John Mueller has made an argument in CTC Sentinel uh, that virtual plotting, or he uses the term cyber coaching, is a massively overhyped threat. He argues that most of these plots have failed to harm anybody, and I'm just going to quote him here. He argues that cyber coaches have little or no control over their charges, who are very often naive, voluble, incautious, gullible, incapable, and or troubled. Qualities are often underappreciated and sometimes even unacknowledged in official, journalistic, and academic accounts. It is not at all clear how distant coaches can make up for, or even fully appreciate the extent of, these inadequacies. So my question for you is, firstly, are you familiar with John Mueller's argument? And secondly, what do you think of it? Yeah, I'm familiar with Mueller's argument. Uh, I actually enjoyed reading it. I, I don't fully agree with it, but I found it to be um, both something that was... Uh, good at challenging the way I look at the issue, and I thought that it overall was well-argued. In fact, um, when I was doing a deep dive into virtual plotting a few years ago, it was one of the articles I tweeted out and, and actually recommended. I think part of the difference between coming from the dealer is he's looking at trying to assess terrorism in terms of an absolute threat, whereas I'm looking at, does something transform the model of terrorism or the model that violent Nazi actors are using? Um, to that extent, it's clear that virtual plotting is a game changer. Bert Mueller argues that it's not a game changer because the body count is low. I think even though he somewhat undercounts the body count, he doesn't undercount it by too much. Right? He undercounts it in that he only attributes a single fatal attack to Rashid Kassim, where there actually were two. But it's clear that actually most of these attacks are not succeeding. I mean, you, you might say Justin Nugent Sullivan in North Carolina who killed his neighbor, but it's not clear that killing his neighbor was actually linked to a virtual plotter uh, as opposed to the broader attack that he was planning to carry out. So it's a low body count. And I think that it, it's worth reading Mueller and understanding it within that context. But I would still say that when it comes to the model of terrorism being employed, it's very clear that this is a game changer because, for example, when you look at the pace of attack that occurred in Europe, even if you say, okay, low body count, 
it's very clear that it had a transformative impact on European politics, and it was able to to cause fear, and it was able to draw attention to ISIS in the exact way it was wanted. All of that together makes it a game-changing development, but I think that when you're assessing a game-changer, you should also look at what the absolute impact is. And I think there's a fair argument to be made that, yes, despite all of these innovations, the absolute impact itself has been low. I caution, of course, though, that that could change fairly easily. Like Things like an absolute impact being low can suddenly change because the impact of you know, terrorism is low until it's not. And prior to the 9-11 attacks, people thought terrorists wanted a lot of people watching, not a lot of people dead. Oftentimes, things can change quickly when it comes to organizations that are probing and looking for opportunities to kill. Um, so I similarly, I think the point about the body count being low is very valuable, but I similarly have hesitations about Mueller's argument, partly from the perspective of sort of the, my own region. So I think in Indonesia, virtual plotting certainly led to a resurgence of uh, terrorist plots there. And within Australia, I think I'm very conscious of the mid-2017 plot to place a bomb on a plane and then build a chemical weapon. And it's true that that completely failed, but that was one of the most serious terrorist plots we've had here. And I just can't help but think that had that been tried a few more times in a number of other countries across the world, at some point something like that could succeed, have a major impact, um, and that body count could, of these plots could dramatically go from, you know, the single digit or maybe double digit figures to something much higher. Precisely. I think that uh, actually what you put your finger on provide, provides the reason why it's good to have both arguments um, simultaneously. And one of the reasons why I actually recommended the Mueller argument, even though I didn't fully agree with it, uh, because similarly in Indonesia, where, as you said, the patterns of terrorism changed. One thing about the most prominent Indonesian virtual plotter, the now deceased Barun Naim, is that he also has a, a, a very low or perhaps even non-existent body count. And yet you can also see how many... Pl- I, I think that, that it would be wrong to say it's non-existent. I, I believe that uh, his linkage to the um, Indonesian urban warfare style attack has a body count of at least four. But at any rate, like his body count was very low compared to the number of attacks that he was involved in helping to orchestrate. And so it's good to have both of these arguments simultaneously existing, because I think at the very least, it's true that it's both a game changer and a game changer with a relatively low body count. And in the future, it's possible that, um, hopefully not, but it's possible that the latter trend uh, may not hold constant. Indeed. Let's turn to drones. Until recently, Western governments had a near monopoly on the use of unmanned aerial vehicles, particularly armed unmanned aerial vehicles, but that's no longer the case. You discussed this quite a bit in your report. Um, Tell us particularly how Islamic State's adoption of drone technology changed this. ISIS's successful adoption of drones was driven in large part by massive advances in UAS technology that was available to consumers. UAS became cheaper, they became able to fly further, they became able to carry heavier payloads, all of which gave ISIS many more options to uh, utilize drones. And one can see this learning curve even in comparing you know, early uses of drones by ISIS back when it was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, with um, you know, militants throwing drones in the air, and sometimes they would plummet to the ground, sort of like they were paper airplanes, uh, with their later uses of drones. Uh, the, 
later on, ISIS was able to use drones for a variety of purposes. Uh, most prominently, in the battle for Mosul, they used drones to drop grenades on the forces who were trying to retake Mosul from the Iraqi side. They were also able to use drones, uh, for example, uh, for propaganda purposes, filming from the sky. They were able to use them for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, which can be useful in a variety of ways. It gave them a sense of the pattern of life of the uh, enemy forces they were trying to target. It's known that drones have made uh, indirect fire much more accurate, because if you're shooting a mortar and you don't see where the mortar lands, it's hard to figure out exactly where you should aim it. Whereas if you're shooting a mortar and you have a drone that is monitoring where the mortar shell is landing, suddenly a mortar, which is generally thought of as indirect fire, becomes a lot more accurate. It's a lot easier to aim it and actually um, either hit or come closer to hitting uh, an enemy force. So in all of these ways, drones um, on ISIS's part have changed the battlefield, and it's something which is being very widely ad adopted. Uh, drones are being used in multiple theaters in Africa now, and also uh, just south of the United States, where I live, you have cartels that are making use of drones for multiple purposes. Uh, drones are used to monitor the U.S.'s southern border and to facilitate the movement of contraband, whether it's drugs or smuggling humans through the border. Uh, they're used uh, for other purposes. In a variety of countries, they've been used to bring contraband into, pr into prison facilities, drugs and other contraband. Um, this has been... Uh, something that a lot of uh, sub-state actors have relied upon. Uh, and so you also discuss in the report how Um Shunyoku um, in the 1990s made use of drones. Do you tell us a bit about that? So Um Shunrikyo is a really interesting organization. It's a millenarian cult. It was led by Shoko Asahara, who preached a hybrid of Buddhism and Christianity, which focused on the idea of a coming apocalypse. It was an extraordinarily well-resourced organization. It attracted uh, a large number of individuals who um, had a high income, including highly educated individuals, uh, physicists and other scientists, who were able to actually build a fairly well-functioning chemical and biological weapons program. Ohm became notorious later on in 1995 for using sarin in the Tokyo subway. But they experimented early on with drones. One thing they experimented with was a remote-controlled helicopter that was retrofitted to spray sarin gas in a targeted assassination. This experiment, though, was unsuccessful. The helicopter actually crashed on the Colt's second attempt, and it was basically unable, despite all of its scientific acumen, to weaponize a remote-controlled helicopter. You know, that's significant, and it's in line with what I was saying about the improvement of UAS technology. This hyper-empowered cult in the 1990s wasn't able to use UAS successfully, whereas ISIS, after the improvements in UAS technology, was able to do so to great effect in a relatively short period of time. Violent non-state actors are often very good at riding a technological wave. And this is a major focus of your report, and you conceptualize um, how they undertake organizational learning to provide these technological ways, and you propose a technology adoption curve used by violent non-state actors. It goes through early adoption, iteration, breakthrough, and then competition. Um, can you tell us about this technology adoption curve? 
Yeah, so you outlined what the four phases are. The early adoption phase is where a violent non-state actor first tries to use a new technology. And this is often marked by a high failure rate. Uh, and in the, in the drone case, we can see you know, Ohm's early attempts where it wasn't able to get a helicopter working. In the social media sphere, uh, one part of early adoption that you could talk about is the rate at which a lot of people who were in contact, for example, with early plotters often ended up getting arrested. Then there's an iteration phase. And in the iteration phase, this is sort of where a startup goes out to market and starts to pivot. This is where the violent non-state actor refines its use of the technology. And often at the same time, the technology itself is undergoing contemporaneous improvements. In the case of social media and uh, the virtual plotter model, one of the most significant improvements was the improvement in end-to-end encryption that occurred while, while ISIS in particular was iterating on the technology. In the case of drones, iteration was occurring while drones themselves were becoming much more effective and affordable for consumers. In the third phase, the breakthrough phase, that's where the violent non-state actor's success rate significantly improves. Uh, and so examples of that include when you got to the virtual plotter model with multiple attacks being orchestrated by some of ISIS's virtual plotters. In, on the drone side, uh, we talked already about what ISIS was able to do in terms of propaganda, uh, ISR, using drones as weapons against forces trying to retake Mosul. And then the final phase is the competition phase. Because it doesn't just end with the violent non-state actors experiencing a breakthrough and then being able to use the technology successfully over and over again. Instead, in the competition phase, state actors, technology companies, and other stakeholders will implement countermeasures. Sometimes they're very effective. In the case of social media, you know, ISIS has been basically kicked off of major social media platforms. It has moved to other platforms that are less accessible. But if you go back to 2015, 2016, it had ubiquitous access to multiple audiences, including potential recruits. And if you look at ISIS being kicked off of Twitter, kicked off of Facebook, kicked off of YouTube, they don't enjoy anything like that access now. In the case of drones, it's a little bit of a different story. You have counter UAS technology, but drones are still a fairly powerful weapon. Uh, they're a weapon that even employed by nonviolent groups can shut down an airport for several days when the malicious use is just having a drone come and hang out by uh, the runway for a while. We saw that, for example, in what happened in Gatwick back in December. So um, there's the competition phase is an unknown state, in part because future improvements in technology are hard to predict. But it's, at, it's a point at which the violent non-state actor and other actors are all trying to out-innovate and out-strategize one another at the same time. And you make the interesting point in your report that the iteration phase is often when the group can be underestimated. People look and say they're experimenting with this technology, but they're not able to do much with it yet. But that can often precede the breakthrough, which when they finally achieve what they're trying to do, and then it comes as a surprise. Precisely, because in the iteration phase, often people will lose sight of what the violent non-state actor is doing. They'll focus on the uh, initial failures, and sometimes the initial failures will appear comedic. Uh, These groups are easy to mock. And uh, rather than drawing, you're seeing it as part of a process and understanding it as learning, often people will look at it and conceptualize it as being static. This group failed, and all they will see is failure. Uh, So to me, part of what we have when conceptualizing how these groups use technology is a failure not just of imagination, 
but a failure of understanding what process is is being undertaken. So part of my goal in putting forward the violent non-state actor tech adoption curve is trying to move the competition phase further to the left along the curve. Right now, it, it often comes, not always, but it often comes after the breakthrough phase. And if we're able to start to compete and take countermeasures earlier on uh, during the early adoption or iteration phase, then I think we'll be more successful at shutting down a lot of uh, mechanisms that VNSAs are using to try to improve themselves technologically. So in that spirit, in your report, you look at some of the future prospects for technology adoption by terrorist groups and other violent non-state actors, um, particularly their potential use of artificial intelligence and cryptocurrencies. Sure. Why don't we start with the one I'm more skeptical of, cryptocurrencies, and then we'll turn to artificial intelligence, which I'm more concerned about. Uh, Cryptocurrencies, I think the use of cryptocurrencies will grow. But there are some inherent problems to cryptocurrency. Uh, I think the, the most important thing about cryptocurrency is what it's trying to solve, which presents a problem with respect to violent non-state actors. So let's stipulate that violent non-state actors using crypto in general will look to crypto because they want to conceal what they're doing financially or be able to move funds that otherwise can be difficult to access, to, where they might be you know, shut out of normal financial systems. Now, the problem for a violent non-state actor, if it doesn't control the space that it's in, the way ISIS controlled its space, if it's a a group that is illegal and trying to disguise how it's moving funds, its problem is that the blockchain uh, basically keeps a permanent record of how the cryptocurrency is spent. So essentially, um, a blockchain is designed to solve the double spending problem. Like, Andrew, if I uh, have a virtual dollar and I give it to you, and uh, there's, it's not attached to a bank or other financial institution. You don't have a good uh, guarantee that I haven't also given the same virtual dollar to Nina. The blockchain solves that by creating a permanent ledger of all the transactions that are being made. Now, it's not as though uh, it would say there that, you know, David gave this to Andrew. Instead, uh, it would be uh, the codes that we're using. It would be the codes that correlate with the wallets that we use. But if you can unpack who controls which wallet, then you get a really good sense of where their financial transactions are. Another problem that we've seen, especially in uh, the in the Bitcoin space, is the way in which uh, because cryptocurrency can um, it attaches only to a wallet, not to a financial institution, the way that it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to hackers. We've seen uh, hackers who appear to be linked to North Korea. Uh, hacking into different crypto accounts and stealing the money. The other thing is uh, you have this inherent problem where the security of the currency and the ability to uh, make sure that the organization has access to it are intention to one another. One of my favorite examples is there was a, a, a cryptocurrency company, a private firm, where the CEO died and he was the only person who had access to the password to access the wallet. So the company went bankrupt because the dead CEO didn't make sure that another person had the password. Now, you might, seem, you might think, okay, well, this person was just stupid. But actually, there's a reason for this, which is like, if you give the password to, say, your secretary or to even your COO, and it's not someone who's completely trustworthy, they could just use the password to empty out the wallet. 
so it creates a lot of tensions. And within an organization like a VNSA, we've seen people embezzle uh, from Al-Qaeda before. That's how Jamal al-Fadl, for example, who was one of the key witnesses in the 1998 East Africa embassy bombing, fell out with the organization. He embezzled, and then he was on the outs, and he you know, basically turned state's evidence. Uh, so it would enable, uh, if you don't have good controls, actually significant theft from these organizations. For all of those reasons, I think that, there, that there's the potential for cryptocurrency to grow. And in particular, as cryptocurrency can be used in some theaters that are relevant to violent non-state actors, like as it, as it becomes more ubiquitous in North Africa, as it becomes more ubiquitous in Latin America, the Horn of Africa, you, you may have VNSAs using it more. But I think there are some inherent weaknesses that it's hard for me to game through exactly how a VNSA would solve these weaknesses. Artificial intelligence, on the other hand, is another story. Um, I think AI will be used by violent non-state actors. And there's a lot of different ways in which it might be used. Uh, when you look at all the applications of, of AI and the way that AI is being made more accessible to consumers in the same way that this happened with drones, you face the prospect, for example, of a violent non-state actor using AI-enabled social network mapping to figure out who they have to uh, kill or capture when they take over a city. Uh, you know, VNSAs will probably, though not before states, uh, take make use of deep fakes and other you know, AI-enabled propaganda. Uh, there's some other kind of interesting uses of artificial intelligence, uh, such as uh, you know, using bots or um, for a variety of purposes. I think that, um, again, we probably will see that used more powerfully by states first, but VNSAs will be watching that. Uh, essentially, for AI, I think it's very predictable that AI is going through the same technological curve that we saw with um, with drones, and that the implications are going to be enormous. I mean, even outside the context of violent non-state actors, I think deep fakes, which is you know artificial intelligence enabled fake video, fake audio uh, that can look for all the world like it's a real image is going to pose a lot of problems ranging from, you know, you, we already have seen the ability of AI to create, you know, fake pornography of like famous actresses. There's been a big controversy about that not too long ago as well there should be because it's a disgusting practice, but you know, it can also be used to uh, put politicians into fake compromising situations uh, to basically our entire conception of reality at some point is going to be called into question. And I think people have not thought through the implications of deep fakes enough because I think the social impact of deep fakes, it might not be as great as the social impact of social media, but if you look at just how blindsided people have been by the changes that social media has wrought, I think it is a hundred percent predictable and foreseeable that deep fakes are going to have a ripple effect socially uh, through the way that we organize, understand reality, and uh, how we think about the world. There's a lot to think through there. Uh, and I find the deep fakes deep thing quite ominous because um, it's not simply that deep fakes can be used to defraud people, it's also that when there are real videos, I can imagine people saying, well, that wasn't me, that was a deep fake, I didn't carry out that crime. Yeah, that's precisely correct. And I think that we'll, we'll see that used in a number of different examples, including um, examples like mass atrocities. Uh, I think that people will look backwards at uh, past events and uh, 
basically um, see them through the lens of deep fakes. Um, I think areas where this was probably uh, prone to be used will be, uh, I think we'll see it used in the context of 9-11 denial. I think that it'll be used in the context of Holocaust denial, uh, like fairly clearly. And I think that, that there are a number of other conspiracy theories, maybe even, you know, I mean, the moon landing you already have, uh, you know, attached a, a large number of uh, arguments about the moon landing being um, a sound studio. Like there are some fascinating conspiracy theories there. So maybe not as, as important in that area. But I think there are a number of areas in which the deep fake argument will be retrospectively applied and to help give power to past conspiracy theories, which, for example, uh, photos or film have already helped to disprove. That's a good point. So um, to look at the good guys for a bit, how can counterterrorism authorities, um, you know, and indeed academics and traders interested in this area, understand terrorist uses of technology better and adapt accordingly? I think the main thing is to look at them as basically startup firms that are putting something out to market and then pivoting once it hits the market. Often that pivot is they'll get it out to market and it won't succeed. And so they will try a new iteration. And you know, look, a lot of startup firms fail. Um, it, you know, I think it's something like, we don't know the, the exact statistics, but it's like something like one or three in 10 startups that make it past three years. It's one in 10, right, Nina? Something like that. Uh, most startups fail. But generally speaking, startups have a process of trying to uh, get things out to market and uh, see what intersects well with the market. And they expect, expect success to come from failure. I think we need to understand violent non-state actors and their use of technology in the same light, where a lot of the early attempts are really experimentation and not what they're wedded to. And we, we've seen this, of course, even in the context of attacks prior to the technology boom that we're currently living through. Uh, the early attempt on the World Trade Center was, of course, followed uh, about eight years later by a much more successful attempt, which actually brought the Twin Towers down. Uh, that's one prominent example, but we often see terrorist groups return to the same target with different techniques. That's not to say, of course, that they didn't want to succeed in early attempts, but that oftentimes they'll learn from early plots that fail or they'll learn from early technology attempts that fail and will become better at it. I think we need to understand them through a lens of organizational learning, which will help us to better counter the designs that they have for using technologies effectively um, or for learning in other ways. In the report itself, you argue that organizational learning is not focused on enough within the academic field of terrorism studies. What do you think the reason for that might be? First of all, let me acknowledge that there has been some good work done on organizational learning. It's not focused on enough in my view, but it certainly has had uh, its uh, share of, of scholars explore the concept. I think the main reason, though, it's not focused on as much as it should be is probably how we divide up the disciplines. When we uh, look at uh, terrorism studies, it tends to uh, focus on you know, the strategy of groups it tends to focus on in individual level radicalization or what individuals do. Sometimes it's very tactically focused. It's not func focused as much on how organizations function. I think some of the best work there is done in the business literature. And I think that it's basically a, a product of what people focus on, A. But B, I, I think if you're an academic, uh, you, you understand what uh, being in a department is like, being in an academic department. 
and you, pr- you probably have a lot of views on the academic department as an organization, um, but y- you don't necessarily, uh, I think that having the experience of building an organization or being a part of an organization where organizational principles are fundamentally a part of it provides a sense of interest in organizational learning and, how, and organizational dynamics, which isn't necessarily inherent to academic study. And you know, one reason I say this is because early in my career, I did not focus enough on organizational learning or other organizational dynamics. It was really when I started my own organization uh, and started reading in the business literature about how organizations I admire are set up that I gained a much deeper appreciation of just how important these aspects of violent non-state actors are. So, talking of organizational learning, you and Nina run an organization yourself called Valence Global. Um, You've often mentioned just then, and on other podcasts and such, that running your own organization has made you think a lot more about terrorist groups and other violent non-state actors as organizations, giving you new insights and new questions to ask. So, as we discussed earlier, let's turn this conversation to Valence itself. Um, I've also been really keen to have you on the show for this reason, uh, because I've always been quite interested in startups and new intellectual initiatives in the national security area. So, in early episodes of this podcast, I interviewed the founders of a countering violent extremism startup, uh, Moonshot CVE, and also interviewed someone from the Australian Army who was involved with these initiatives that were sort of startups, but they weren't commercial Um, that were being created for professional military education discussion. And some of the most interesting national security ideas, in my mind, come out of what begin as these small-scale initiatives that often get much larger. So war on the box, lawfare. And I similarly have been following the work of Balance for a while, which is why I've invited you on. Um, I found your work on virtual plotting particularly useful, um, particularly as there's been a number of those such cases in Australia, and because in my mind there has been sort of a genuinely new development whereas sometimes terrorism studies focus a lot of attention on things that aren't as new as they appear. So I want to use this as an opportunity for myself and our listeners to find out more about the inside workings of Valence, the organisational challenges you have faced, and how Valence deals with sort of the dilemmas and difficulties of the um, modern marketplace of ideas, which can be a very crowded and sometimes quite dysfunctional place. So there's a lot we could discuss here, but firstly, why did you set up Valence and what does it do? So Valens, uh, I would say, is a startup firm in this space, in the national security space, with a focus on violent non-state actors, though it's um, actually progressively broadening uh, the conception of its mission, which is what it was designed to do. Um, I, I founded it in part because uh, I was I found it in the midst of a, cu- a couple of very strongly felt debates, um, you know, where what I describe as consensus errors um, occurred. A consensus error is, as I define it, where, you know, 80% of the field or more uh, weighs in on a conclusion that ends up being inaccurate. Uh, So the first one was the Arab Spring and the way that uh, back in 2011, this was supposed to be the death knell for jihadism. Like we all, those of us who were in the field then, of course, remember those debates. And um, then, then there was another set of debates, which I think was very much linked to them, but also where I'd say a consensus error occurred. And that was the 2014 to about 2016 or 17 period, where ISIS was supposed to dis- destroy, break up the Al-Qaeda network, which of course didn't happen. Um, in both of those debates, you know, I, I, you know, I happened to be correct about uh, 
what was going on in the world. But what I found is that it was actually very professionally harmful to me uh, to take that position in a debate. Now, the dynamics of that, the reasons why that was the case, I think one can debate in a, in a number of different ways, and I don't necessarily need to psychoanalyze what what produces consensus errors. Let's just say that they were there, and it was hard to fight against a crowd. I wanted to start Valens in part because I thought that as one individual can't really change the field or change the direction of a field. I think that what's needed is not so much an organization that's taking the other position, but rather an organization that makes space for less groupthink. That's one thing that we care about a lot. Uh, I mean, within the ISIS al-Qaeda debate or the Arab Spring debate, I wasn't really wedded to making sure my position was right, but rather I was saying what I thought to be true. And I think that it's important that we revisit our ideas. And I, I don't see that the field has really done that. I don't see that there was a reckoning after uh, the Arab Spring deba debates or Arab Spring analysis or after the ISIS AQ analysis. Instead, people seem to move on to their next uh, project and try to pretend that they were right all along. And I, I don't think that's what an organization should do. I don't think that's what an individual scholar should do. I think you have to be... Uh, very intricately attuned to your own errors if you want to reduce your rate of error in the future. And I think a good field should reward risk-taking, should reward people betting against the crowd and getting it right. And I think, heck, even if you bet against the crowd and don't get it right, like in the Mueller case, right? He, John Mueller, we talked about his argument before. He's saying something different than most people are saying. And even though I have some disagreements, I'm glad that his argument is there challenging the impact of the virtual plotter model, because reading Mueller made me think much more rigorously about how I consider virtual plotters, even if I don't agree with him. So I think that, that we have some problems in how the field is constructed, the way that it, it carries out debates. These problems may not be unique to the counterterrorism field. I think we live in an age of groupthink, and we live in an age where people mistake popularity for being right. And we live in an age where, due to social media and other factors, you can know instantaneously what everyone in the world thinks about your ideas. And that has uh, a host of advantages, but also it creates a host of intellectual problems. What I wanted in Valens is a space where we would do the opposite is a space where we would challenge conventional wisdom when we think it should be challenged, and a space where we would, uh, as, as best we can, keep track of our own predictions and keep track of dissent within the organization on from issue to issue, where, where people can bet against the organization. And if someone's getting things right and our main line of analysis is wrong, we have to rethink that main line of analysis. Um, I wanted essentially an institution where uh, we could demand rigor and we could hold ourselves accountable uh, to get uh, things as right as we possibly can in a very complex world. Interesting. So um, I agree strongly on the group thing point, and without wanting to go on a tangent, because um, we focus on organizations in this episode, um, I think the early days of the blogosphere were much better for challenging opinions and getting good discussion going than the current Twitter sphere. Um, but here we're focused on organizations and balance on the organization. So I'm very interested to find out more about um, if and how um, these founding ideas of balance work out in practice. So I would like to bring in now Nina, the Chief Operating Officer of Valens. So as an organization, how is Valens structured? So basically we have three major departments. So that's the overarching structure of the organization. We have uh, our Business Development Department, our Operations Department, and our Analysis Department. 
um, they're very closely integrated. So for example, um, there are times that we have client meetings, which would you know usually be housed in the business development department, but we actually have analysts that will go to those meetings and even lead those meetings because we believe that particular analyst would be better suited to talk to the client than someone in the business development department. Or um, obviously I am the head of operations, but before I sign off on a process, I actually bring in the analysis department and I say, um, does this make sense to you guys? Just because you're not in the operations department, it does not mean that you shouldn't have a say on the processes and procedures that I'm gonna implement in the organization. Now, that is not to say um, that what we are doing um, in terms of integrating different departments is groundbreaking, especially for small businesses, that is not particularly unique. I think that what is unique about Valence and what makes our structure different um, are three concepts that we try to live by and structure the company around. Um, one of them is um, empowerment at junior levels. The other one is transparency. And the third one is adaptability. And um, I will preface this by saying that uh, those three words um, are not concepts that we are we coined or that other companies doesn't uh, that other companies don't use. It's simply that I think that saying that that's your mission and actually accomplishing it effectively are two very different things. So I do want to take some time explaining each of them and the best way that I can think of um, to explain how Balance does this is by using just everyday examples of how the companies run. So thank you, um, because yeah, as someone who's not in the startup world, it's not clear to me how much this is an unusual structure or not, or how much this is something that other startups always say or not. So I would mm -hmm. really like to hear some real examples of how uh, these kind of stated goals can be carried out in practice. Of course. So for example, the first one that I said was empowerment at junior levels. And this is um, a concept that I have heard um, and um, a lot of companies use and it's part of their, you know, recruitment spiel that, you know, it doesn't matter uh, what is well, your title in the company, everyone has a voice. Um, what I have often seen is that that is not the case once you join the organization. Um, what I can say, and I'm very proud of Valence, is that we do structure everything so this is true to who we are. And I have a few examples. Um, one of my examples, which is my favorite is um, if we find out about a project that we really want to bid on, we want to you know, put out a proposal for a client, um, usually what we do is we sit down in a meeting with some members of the business development uh, department, we'll sit down with a few analysts, and then David's going to be in that meeting, right? And um, oftentimes, um, David will start the meeting by proposing an idea, but before he even proposes the idea, the caveat is always, this might be a great idea, but this might also be a really bad idea. And then he jumps into um, what he's about to say. And although this sounds like it's something very small, what you're telling your team is, I might be the CEO, I might be the head subject matter expert in the organization, but this does not mean that my idea will be the best idea on the table. And I ask you to let me know if it isn't. 
and um, I have seen a very positive impact um, that it has on the team. And usually what ends up happening is the people that have been here the longest, um, especially if you have a new member of the team that is joining the meeting and still doesn't quite understand how the dynamics are. And you know, the CEO might say, this could be a bad idea, but what he actually means is, this is what we're going to do. Um, so what more senior members of our team will do is they will immediately challenge the meet. Even if they don't have anything to challenge, it is again, an implicit way of letting the whole team know, this is okay. This is an environment where you can challenge them and you can come up with your own ideas. And with time, what ends up happening is I'm sitting in a brainstorming um, session where uh, my intern feels very comfortable bringing up his or her idea, uh, even though the VED is right there, sitting there, and he just proposed something. But the in our intern will say, hey, I have an idea too. And we have gone with the idea of our intern or our analyst or you know someone that's uh, at our BD meeting. And I think that... This is a good example of um, empowerment at junior levels um, in the analysis side um, of the organization. I can give an example in terms of the operational side, which I also think that there needs to be a room for that and the way the company is structured. So one example that I have is literally yesterday, um, we were talking about posting a new job position for Valence and I created the template of the minimum requirements of what we were looking for and I asked one of our analysts to review it and I said, you know, take a look at this, see if it makes sense for you. You have been working closely in the project and we need a new team member for your project. And this analyst came back to me and said, hey Nina, you put in the minimum requirements that, you know, the person needs X amount of years of experience do you really think this is the case? I'm not so sure. And my answer to the person was, it's up to you. You are the one who's going to be working closely with this individual. It is completely on you know, your authority and your autonomy to come back to me and say, that person does not need five years of experience. I actually would prefer if we open it up for anyone with a bachelor's degree or a bachelor's degree is not required. Um, so having that conversation and allowing our whole team to be able to come back and say, you know, just because the CEO of the company said that this position requires five years of experience does not mean that she's correct or that she knows more than I do. I'm the one working um, in this project. I am the one who's going to be working with this person that we're bringing in. So I have the autonomy to come to her and say, hey, I don't think we need this. And obviously I changed it right away and you know we're making that post in live, but I think that those are very small day-to-day -day examples of how you empower everyone in your organization. So it sounds a bit like the idea of red teaming, but sort of almost a casual everyday version of it. Correct, and I think that um, one thing that happens here a lot is people don't even realize how um, how much autonomy they have and um, all of the structure that has been so naturally ingrained in the company that um, I've had um, employees that eventually went to the public se sector and then they'll call me in within 30 days of joining the public sector and they'll be like, Nina, I had no idea. 
and um, you know the amount of bureaucracy that can exist and the amount of authority and autonomy that I had and I didn't even realize. And to me, um, I love hearing that in the sense that it has become so natural that you don't even need to think about it. And that's what I want. I want an organization where people don't have to think, oh, I have the autonomy to do X, Y, and Z. It is just part of how you function the moment you walk through um, the company's doors. Um, so a big focus of the early part of this discussion on violent non-state actors was about organizational learning and technology adoption. So what is Valen's own approach to like organizational learning, kind of attaining institutional memory and adopting technology? Sure. So um, running the risk of drawing um, too many parallels between Valen's global and Valen non-state actors, um, I think that there's an important concept that is mentioned in the report which is um, which can be applied to small businesses, um, and it is that innovation is not a necessity, um, is a necessity. It is not a luxury. And um, the way that we approach innovation at Balance is through experiential learning, which basically means that um, the organization uses trial and errors to identify best practices. And um, this is very ingrained to the idea of empowerment at junior levels because basically you can truly empower people if you don't give them the opportunity to try things and to make mistakes. Um, there are, again, several examples that I can give. One example is, um, you know, trial and error that I have gone through running the operations of the organization. So um, I think about a year ago, um, I was talking to all of our analysts and I realized that there was some anxiety surrounding um, planning for the month because there were so many different projects and so many things going on that they didn't know how to allocate their time. So I thought, oh, I got this. This is an easy fix. I'm going to do what other companies do. I am going to tell you that you have, you know, 160 hours in a month and I'm going to divide your hours based on projects and then I'm going to tell you you have 100 hours to work on A, you know, 30 hours to work on B and then that's how we're going to divide it. And at first everyone was like, this is great, sounds good, let's do it. Um, two months later I have the whole of the analyst team come back to me and say, this absolutely is not working. Um, what happens is at the end of the month we never meet the hours that we thought we were going to meet in the beginning. Everyone feels like they're failing because you end up doing something so different and you don't understand how you got there. And instead of uh, decreasing anxiety, we're just creating more anxiety and making people feel defeated. And I was like, 100% not what I intended. I failed miserably at that. So one thing that I did was I made, a, made almost a public statement of, got it, this was a mistake. And I think that's number the number one thing that you need to do in an organization is make sure that if you truly believe that to learn it requires trial and error, then everyone in the organization needs to make it public when they make a mistake. Otherwise, it's very easy to tell young analysts, it's okay if you make a mistake, but then the CEO and the CEO of the company never acknowledge when they make their mistakes. So um, that's one thing that David does very well and I, try to always do is every time that I acknowledge I've made a mistake, I'm like, all right, got it. Now let's fix it. So 
then I sat down with them and tried to figure out what was the best way to decrease this anxiety. And we had a few other back and forths and in the end we settled with our current structure, which is we have weekly meetings with all the analysts and I sit down with them and we talk about resource allocation. Um, I truly believe it would not have gotten to this conclusion if we hadn't tried five different other things. And I think that that is the most efficient way of learning in the organization and it allows you to continue to be adaptable because if you keep trying new things um, that means that what is working now which is this weekly meetings um, I'm open to the idea that three years from now when I have you know a hundred analysts this will no longer work but I have a structure in this company where we have been trying new things and then we can figure out what is the next best thing um, to address a little bit um, your question about uh, technology adoption, I think that the best example is Valence Labs, which is our sister company. And I would kind of give David the room to talk a little bit about Valence Labs um, because I do think that that is one amazing example of, of how we address that. Okay, so what is Valence Labs? Valence Labs is, uh, as Nina said, a sister company to Valence Global. It's an artificial intelligence firm. Uh, it was founded about a year ago, and uh, basically I'd, I'd had an idea for the longest time and uh, finally found kind of the right engineer who was uh, actually a, a high school classmate of mine, someone I've known since middle school, who was uh, working on somewhat similar, um, basically using recurrent neural networks to do something very similar, but in the context of uh, equities markets. Uh, what my view was that uh, sub-state violence it can, is, can be made predictable, not fully predictable. There's going to be plenty of black swan events, but that there are similar patterns uh, and the patterns often recur, whether it's uh, seasonal or whether it's uh, tech technologies or uh, innovations jumping from one theater to another. Uh, and I thought that given the power of AI, that it could be used to project this with a degree of accuracy. So this is our, our initial project. Um, it's a project designed to use harness the power of AI to project future patterns of sub-state violence. Right now, we're focused on terrorism violence, though uh, we have a project in the works, which I think we'll get investment for, which is also going to extend this into the realm of cartels. Uh, there's a number of different uh, applications for this, but my view ultimately is that with current technologies, and as we talked about, violent non-state actors use current technologies very well, but I think a general, uh, the, the current technologies enable a generational leap forward uh, on the non-government side in terms of provision of security, and I like to think that Valence Labs is um, part of the crest of this wave. Thank you. So Nina, you were talking earlier about sort of the three stated values of Balance Global, empowering junior levels, transparency and adaptability. Um, but you're also talking about how these are sort of common kind of ideas in this world. Um, so I want to go into particularly the last two because we more discussed the empowering junior levels aspect of it. Um, what are examples? How do you actually sort of make sure transparency and adaptability is something carried out in practice? Sure. So um, I think that, um, you know, there's an old saying that goes, information is power. Um, well, if I am claiming that my company 
um, accomplishes the feat of empowerment at junior levels, then I need to also make sure that they are receiving all the information that they can because you cannot have power without information. So that kind of goes hand in hand with the idea that if I'm going to accomplish empowerment at junior levels and I have to be very good at transparency and um, the free flow of information. So um, the way that we do that and, and that that is a big part of everything that we do. Um, but for example, small things like every morning, we have what we call a daily stand-up, which is the whole company gets together and for about 15 minutes, every person uh, stands up and talks about what they did the day before and what they plan on accomplishing today. What that does is make sure that everyone's on the same page and they know that what I'm doing, the same way that I know what our analyst is doing and I know what our business development departments do it. Um, we have our softwares all set up so everyone has access to everything. So um, our documents that are in our company drive, the moment you join the company, you have access to everything. Obviously, there are a couple of things that are confidential, like your employment information uh, that is not open for everyone. It's only the HR department um, has access to that. So there are some obvious exceptions to that transparency and free, free flow of information. But the idea being that anything that you would like to know, you should have access to. And if you don't, um, then you are always encouraged to ask me um, or David. I have never had a situation where someone asked me a question and my answer had to be, I'm sorry, but I cannot provide you with that information. Um, and I think that that's uh, a crucial aspect of a company. Um, it's very easy, especially as you grow, to believe that because information is power, it behooves you to keep it to yourself uh, because then you will have more power than others within your organization. And we try to foster the exact opposite. If you have information that you didn't share with someone else, that is now your fault because everyone else should have had that information. If I can track it down, and find out that you didn't share it, I wanna know why. And, um, and I think that's an important structure to, to create an organization. Obviously, Andrew, I'm not gonna sit here and say that it is a perfect system. It absolutely is not. And I am constantly trying to come up with better ways and more efficient ways to share information. And you know, if you are in a stressful environment or coming up um, on a deadline, out of the sudden, a lot of the structure can break down because if you're stressed, you might forget that this information is important for everyone else. So how do I make sure that my analysts are sharing information even when they don't have a lot of time? Um, so that kind of weaves nicely to the concept of adaptability in the sense that once we go through a, a different experience or after every project, we all sit down as a team and we talk about everything that went well and everything that could have gone better. And what that accomplishes is first, we acknowledge our errors. Um, we celebrate our successes, but what I'm looking for when we have those meetings is let's adapt. We, we cannot afford to not be constantly better than our competitors. Um, we are a small company and I, believe that we have such a valuable product that we simply can't lose that. 
So basically, um, I think adaptability is a crucial concept that sets us apart in our field. Um, I think that especially in the field that we're in, there's a lot of bureaucracy surrounding what we do. And there is this tendency that if you get something right once, then you just want to do the same thing over and over. Um, but what we bring to the table and what we bring to the cli our clients is um, we are constantly asking them not only the question of what do you want, but how would you like us to do that? Um, I can do this in X way, in Y way. If you don't know how you want us to do it, then we will figure it out. But the important thing here is to always be able to adapt to your client's needs. Um, to create a company that is this adaptable, um, there are a few things that you need to do. But I think the first one is fostering a culture of collaboration, not competition. Because if you're empowering everyone and providing information to the, the whole organization, you're never in a situation where you cannot adapt because the decision maker is not in the room. And that is something that happens very often in other organizations is your client may ask you for something, but you don't have the authority to say yes or no. You have to go through a million hoops just to get to the person that would say yes. What we do and what connects with transparency and empowerment at junior levels is everyone we believe is capable of making decisions in the company and we will give you the autonomy to do so. And because we're giving you that autonomy, um, our response to the client is much quicker. I don't need David to sign off on every single thing we do. Um, on the contrary, oftentimes um, we will let David know that this is what we did. And if we make a mistake, part of being an organization is trial and error. And, um, you know, David has been very good at making sure that even if you make a mistake, he will come to you and be like, okay, that wasn't a great idea. Now we know and we'll move on. You're not punished in any way, shape or form. Uh, but that allows people to have uh, reaction time that is much quicker than all of the organizations. Excellent. So we've talked a bunch here about the internal functioning of balance. Um, I also want to talk about sort of the environment balance operates in and it's sort of what contribution it can make to broader public discussion, particularly uh, policy and scholarly discussion. So I was talking earlier about how I find a lot of these initiatives and startups interesting. And often the founders of these sorts of intellectual initiatives, sort of like you did before David, they speak about identifying um, major flaws and gaps in current public discussions of important national security issues, and they felt driven to, you know, rather than just simply sort of throw their hands up in the air, rather to create a new organisation to help sort of reshape that discussion a bit. So, like, the founding statements of War on the Rocks and Lawfare are both kind of like this. But often, because the problems they identify have such large sort of structural causes, whether it's um, sort of the things Dan Dresser talks about in the ideas industry of um, sort of uh, political polarisation such, or simply technology, like Twittersphere being less conducive to certain uh, in-depth discussions compared to the blogosphere, or things like that, I often wonder how these initiatives can... You know, make sure they achieve their intended purposes and how they, in particular, could avoid reproducing some of the same problems they decry. So I'm going to ask some questions on this. And the first question uh, is simply, let's say, given we already have universities, think tanks and governments carrying out research on violent non-state actors and national security issues, 
what's the value of an organization like Valens? I think that private sector organizations can play a very valuable role if done right. Uh, Valens spans a number of different spheres. It works in the academic sphere and does some more uh, broad, uh, purely academic work where the uh, answer itself need not necessarily be immediately applicable to a problem. The violent non-sedactor tech adoption curve is an example of that. That is a theoretical contribution. Uh, we also do very client-specific work. Some of it is analytic. Uh, some of it involves uses of tech, including advanced technologies. And some of it is actually much more applied. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned, but which is a part of what Valens does, is actually hard physical security. Not close protection, not guys with guns, but things like looking, uh, doing site surveys of uh, an office that may be under threat, um, you know, figuring out how you can better securitize it without destroying the function of the office, uh, monitoring uh, the pattern of life of executives in an organization to look for vulnerabilities and where they might face increased risks. Right now, we're in the process of undertaking a business continuity plan for one of our, our clients in case of a disaster, whether natural or man-made, occurs. And these are all very applied. So to me, the area where Valens fits, which is different than, some of, than many of the others, is the ability to be both broad and also applied. And secondly, the ability to uh, base its value on its record. One thing we talked about, I talked about a little bit in terms of the founding statement of Valens and the reason why I created the organization is that the field would sometimes get things wrong and not really examine, did I get this wrong or not? Uh, we have the ability to hold ourselves accountable and to use that as a selling point when talking to clients and others, but that depends upon us very accurately and in measurable ways, looking at our record, looking at what we're saying, uh, looking at whether we're succeeding or failing from project to project. So I think that it it, it very much possesses a um, a space in the market that spans across multiple ways of approaching the problem set. And a core idea that uh, relates to uh, succeeding and growing as an organization by doing work that measurably is suiting its purposes, whether it's um, analytically making the right call or undertaking work that measurably makes the client uh, more secure or to better understand the environment in a way that's measurable. You've mentioned as part of the founding purpose a number of things you've argued the field was getting wrong, namely the impact of the Arab Spring the and the idea of the strategic defeat of al-Qaeda, and then later that ISIS would completely supersede al-Qaeda. Are there any things you think the field is getting wrong at this very moment? That's a good question. Uh, the field has less consensus views at the moment. Um, I think you could say that one consensus view that currently exists is that uh, the Trump administration's withdrawal from Syria makes us uh, less safe vis-a-vis -vis ISIS, though it's an area where I agree with the consensus view. But I, I, don't, I think there are fewer consensus views these days, and there also is generally less interest in what the um, thought leaders in the sphere have to say than there was back in, say, 2015 to 16. This may on net be a good thing. Because I, I think that what you could have is a little bit of a reconstruction and we can take another bite at how we as a field relate to one another. I think in the 2014 through 2017 period, and probably even before that, it was somewhat toxic. I think that uh, at some point, CT will reemerge where people are really interested in counterterrorism issues and 
various uh, analysts are on TV every night like it was back in 2014 to 2016. Uh, and I think that maybe we could take a better cut at that. I think last time around, the success record of the field was mixed. Um, you know, I focused in on consensus errors. That's not to say that the work everyone did was bad or even that the field was terrible. Even within those consensus errors, I think there's a lot of areas in which there was valuable analysis and where people might be wrong on the whole, but uh, might make micro contributions or contributions on specific issues that are themselves very valuable. Um, but I, I think that especially if someone could put forward a persuasive methodology, which is part of what we're working on and how to make things measurable, that can have uh, a downstream impact of making a lot of these discussions less fraught. One thing that struck me about the debates we talked about was not just the field getting things wrong, it was the very personal way in which these, debate occurred, these debates occurred. Like, to me, both of the debates that we talked about, Arab Spring and ISIS v. AQ, are essentially technical debates. Right. And and in both cases, they're debates where the outcome is measurable. They're not debates where which are uh, ethereal, where we won't really know who got things right. Right. Like we understand what the impact of the Arab Spring was. It, at this point, I think that the, the despite what some analysts say, I think that the debate is closed as to what the immediate impact of the Arab Spring was. I think there's an argument that in the longer term, democracy is the way to deal with the jihadist movement. That may be true over time. But I, I don't think anyone would argue that the predictions being made in 2011 were meant to have a 30-year time frame. Um, similarly, ISIS-AQ. To me, I was very surprised by how much venom existed in debates over what to me is a technical issue between two uh, organizations. And to circle back to your question um, about uh, – to circle back to your question – I think that if we are able to measure these things, it can reduce the personalization of these debates and actually have us come down and look at, well, here's competing evidence and understand that, that even different sides of a debate may be adding value by looking at things in different ways. As I said, that's how I look at Mueller in terms of his view of virtual planners versus mine. I think also um, vis-a-vis Mueller versus my argument, while I have disagreements with his, I think that... Uh, some value is added by understanding that there's a difference between the transformative model and the pure body count. And so I think that being able to look at things through different lenses can be very valuable. I think that there should be more public bets between people, because I think that if you can make a bet measurable and make uh, an outcome measurable, that can at least, they can provide something that is interesting and, and helps you to understand who is gauging a specific issue right. And ultimately, if you have a bet where the outcome can be determined, then there's not really a need to like point fingers at one another or make ad hominem attacks. Instead, we can simply let the outcome determine who the winner really was. Thank you. So kind of continuing this theme of, so kind of the public sphere, in Dan Dresner's book, The Ideas Industry, he argues that the modern intellectual marketplace rewards thought leaders, what he calls thought leaders over public intellectuals. And he puts kind of, he attributes three larger structural factors. But his main point is he suggests that the marketplace of ideas currently encourages attention-grabbing claims and catchphrases rather than quality research. Um, and one quote he gives us is that the economics of the modern ideas industry incentivizes intellectuals to hit the lecture circuit before doing the research necessary to justify the lecture circuit. So my question, I guess, firstly for you, David, is do you agree with Dan Dresner's characterization of the modern marketplace of ideas? And then I think I'll throw to Nina and say, if so... Sort of how does balance deal with such pressures? 
So, yeah, I agree with Dresner's uh, overall analysis. I really enjoyed The Ideas Industry. It's a book I would recommend to uh, anybody. And uh, actually, I reread it uh, in preparation for this episode because I knew it's something that you would bring up. Uh, I do have some disagreements with it, but um, those disagreements are, are all essentially that I think Dresner, in many cases, is too easy on the ideas industry. Um, and, and also, the, the other thing is I'm not convinced that public intellectuals um, are making as much of a contribution as he said. I think that what he's putting his finger on, which I agree with, is that it's important to have debate within a field. And obviously, one of the complaints I have uh, with respect to where the field was during some of those early debates is that debate wasn't really encouraged. Instead, there was kind of this monolithic view, and if you weren't with it, uh, that could be very harmful to you as an analyst. Anyway, those are micro-disagreements, um, and disagreements at some point I'd love to be able to discuss with Dresner because I think it's, it's really just a very brilliant uh, and laudable book that very accurately assesses uh, the state of the, the marketplace of ideas. Nina, um, how does kind of balance deal with such pressures? So pressures to potentially just produce, produce, or produce, kind of put out attention-grabbing claims, um, and you know, because doing the solid research behind it might not be immediately rewarded in the marketplace. How do you approach this at balance? Sure. So that's a fantastic question, and I think that the best way to answer it is just to talk a little bit about um, how much we focus on hiring. And part of it is that we screen very heavily um, a balance when we're bringing someone to the team for someone who is intellectually curious. Uh, this is the number one thing that we're screening for. Um, and uh, what happens is um, we also are looking for people who are often not looking for a personal brand. If they are, which sometimes people are, and that, that is not a problem, but that they fully understand that if they're going to have a personal brand, then it needs to be based on real substantial analysis, not catchy tweets. So um, one way to making sure you are not concerned about uh, being the first one to come out with a publication that catches everyone's eyes is actually having a team that will stop people from doing that. And um, I have seen that happen at Valence even internally where it wasn't a public publication. Um, it, it's even, um, you know, internal deliverables that we have and we're working really fast and we have someone uh, on the team who will stop and say, hey guys, I think this could take another 48 hours. I think we need to go back and look at the footnotes again. And um, I think that what we do is screen for people that are intellectually curious because now they don't want to just see if there's a coherent argument. They want to check every single footnote. They want to do their due diligence here because it's interesting to them. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm not look, we're not looking for people that are doing it because uh, that's what you're supposed to do. It's people that are actually passionate about that subject and they want to understand it. And when you get that, when you get people that are passionate about what they do, then I feel that those pressures don't play such a huge role. Um, another thing um, that is a little bit different is that as an organization, we're not necessarily looking to directly engage in public discussions of uh, different topics. We are working for our clients and our goal is to provide quality research. Um, oftentimes that quality research does lead itself to publications, but that's not the goal. 
And once um, that is something that is ingrained in the organization, that our goal is not to be out there engaging in public debates and having, you know, catchy tweets, then you end up screening for people that will not do that. And you create this, again, virtuous cycle where those pressures um, are not as big of a problem. And let me say, I, I agree fully with Nina, but let me also acknowledge some of the challenge as well. Uh, I think Dresner's right that when it comes to how one situates themselves vis-a-vis the intellectual market space of ideas, there's this uh, overwhelming incentive to become an idea evangelist, uh, much more than, you know, when you talk to a public thinker, a public intellectual the way he defines a public intellectual is someone who is often taking apart other people's arguments, pointing to the flaws, problematizing, as opposed to someone who has their big idea and evangelizes around it. Now, let me say that thought leadership, like the idea of evangelist, is not necessarily a bad thing. right? He, he, there are multiple examples throughout Dresner's book where when he critiques them, often it's for the latter stages of their idea evangelism, where there's an overstretch um, for, to the idea of evangelism. Clayton Christensen is one example where he argues that Christensen's work was, uh, I, at least by reading of Dresner, is that he argues that Christensen's work early on was very valuable, but then later on it kind of overstretched and his concept was being applied all over the place uh, to the point where it perhaps lost its coherence. Now, what I would say is, you know, we are a part of the marketplace of ideas. Um, you know, we, we, like everything Nina says is true, but even so, when we're approaching a client or when we're situating ourselves vis-a-vis other companies, there's a way we're situ- situating ourselves vis-a-vis the market space of ideas, which makes, even with all of these precautions in place, it creates a problem because we're going to have to situate ourselves and distinguish ourselves. And sometimes, you know, increasingly, it's through having this marketable way of explaining what you do or having this marketable idea that will catch people's attention. So increasingly, my own view is not hostile towards thought leadership. It seems to me to just be an inevitable part of the current landscape. But what I'd say is that if you're engaging in thought leadership, I think there's a, a few different things. Number one is it's clear that, that the, one of the biggest problems with thought leadership is when people don't do the research first. So the research has to precede the idea. You have to test the idea and making things measurable internally can help to check against the idea overstretch that we've seen uh, in uh, other ways. One other thing which, I th- which at least I'm thinking about with respect to thought leadership, you know, there's, there's this pressure among thought leaders to have that one great idea and keep reusing that great idea. It seems to me like thought leadership would actually be much more effective if rather than having like your single idea, you know, the, the world is flat or whatever, um, you know, you have multiple ideas and can adapt them as the world changes. We're in a very rapidly changing world. And it seems that, you know, there, there are multiple concepts that can explain multiple facets of it. So I think uh, that having um, several ideas that are compelling um, and constantly checking them and seeing whether they still continue to explain the world is maybe a healthy way to go about it. But I think that basically what Dresner describes is the direction of the market space. And it really does create an incentive structure that as we grow, in my view, we're going to be grappling with and figure out how to situate ourselves vis-a-vis. Because um, like ultimately, there's always a pressure to make things digestible in uh, you know, easier and easier chunks. 
And I think it's it's important to acknowledge that it exists and it is something that has an impact, I would say, or will have a growing impact on our organization. So would you agree with Desna's argument that with weak external checks in the current marketplace, internal checks become much more salient? Yes, absolutely. And I think that the external checks should exist, right? Like Valens was founded in the context of several debates where I felt that there were insufficient external checks. There was an incentive to go along with the herd. There wasn't an incentive to challenge it. I think, though, that he gets the direction right, that external checks will become less. Now, if you can make things measurable externally as well, um, you know, if, if, for example, someone were keeping track of pundits' actual records um, or if, you know, both what they got wrong and also what they got right. And not just kind of a gotcha, you got X, Y, or Z wrong, but rather what's your overall record? You know, what were you betting on? What are you getting right? Where have you challenged conventional wisdom? That would be helpful. In, in the interim, though, until there is some sort of better external check, which I think there are a lot of barriers to crafting, uh, you absolutely need an internal check uh, within an organization like Valance. Excellent. Um, and Nina, are you able to tell us any more about sort of the internal checks and processes that occur at Valens? Sure. So um, I think that there are a lot of small things that you can do. Obviously, it should be built on the way um, you conduct research and someone else edits, someone else checks. There's those kind of usual structures that you can take, but there's also small um, structural things that you can add to your organization to make sure that um, there is not um, an issue of unquestioned assumptions or that everyone is just going to agree because this is how you're supposed to go about it. And I kind of um, mentioned it um, a little earlier that you know David likes to start a lot of his ideas by saying, um, this could be good, this could be really bad. This is one small way of doing that, is you're already kind of opening up that door for people to question you. Um, another thing is, uh, I like to joke, I feel personally victimized if I give you three ideas and you don't shut down at least one. Um, I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty smart, but I'm not the brightest light bulb at the Home Depot. You should question me, and I certainly have bad ideas. And, um, and I do think that that starts from the top of the organization. You need to be open to uh, discussing that and, and, and to the idea that um, what you're saying might not make sense. It might not be the best way of going about it. David kind of alluded at one point about um, toxic relationships in this field. And I think that part of that comes from ego and um People feel that their ideas are very personal. Thus, if you critique my idea, you're critiquing me as a person. And um, at Balance, we make sure that that is not the case and that you understand that if I'm critiquing your idea, if anything, I'm doing you a favor because I'm doing it publicly. Someone else will do it uh, privately. So what I'm doing for you is making sure that you are creating a case that if someone else comes to you and asks you this question, you already thought it through. Um, and I think that uh, once you see it through this lens, uh, through the lens of we're helping each other get to the best possible solution and not I'm just poking holes at your ship because I want it to sink, um, then you kind of create this environment where internal checks are um, not only present, but they're something that actually become uh, a pleasant part of being a part of the organization. 
So thank you for this. A big motivation for me with the second part of this episode is kind of my own experiences in um, academia with interacting with think tanks and such and being part of this, you know, the national security-related public sphere for a long time. And I've just been very interested in what institutional forms could be different to kind of, because I strongly agree with sort of the critiques about um, cliques, group thinks, and the spread of unquestioned assumptions and sometimes a toxic atmosphere. So I have both been interested in what sort of... Um, organizational structures can make things different and just also sort of personally how do you not reproduce these sort of flaws that you're intending to challenge um and as Dan Jersner puts in his book alluding to the dark knight how do you make sure you don't become the villain yourself that's something I often try and think about both in my work and kind of in the future and I really wanted to kind of talk to you guys about that too so thanks so much to both of you for coming onto the show and then a very final question then, um, what advice might you have for any of our listeners um, interested in careers in this sort of area? So my main advice, and it would be geared towards young professionals that are starting their career in this field, is um, when you're looking for jobs, is just to make sure you understand that especially your first few years in this field, it's going to be less important um, what you do it's going to be more important who you surround yourself with. And it's simply because your responsibilities will likely teach you much less than your peers. So um, obviously, I fully believe this. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a career in operations. Um, but I believe that if you're looking for a career in the field, pay attention to the culture of the company that you are joining and try to get a good sense um, for what they, not only what they stand for, but what they actually do on their day-to-day and be surrounded by people that are trying to lift you higher, not people that are there just to lift themselves higher. I think that's great advice. What I'd add for analysts is first, just be aware of the limits of what you know and what you don't know. Uh, That's where a lot of errors get made, uh, both in terms of People just thinking that they know much more or um, that information is much more compelling than it is. Or secondly, when people think that something is decided because there seems to be a consensus on a particular issue. Sometimes a consensus is correct, like often it is. But often it reflects unexamined assumptions where uh, basically the more a certain conclusion is repeated, the more people come to think that it's true. And so to me, I'm always very cognizant of areas where for whatever reason, people take an issue um, as a much more emotional one than it should be. When an issue seems to be emotionally fraught or difficult to touch, that often indicates to me that that's a place where an error is likely to occur. I'm not necessarily gonna blunder in and kind of try to um, debate an emotional trigger topic. In part, the value of doing so is very low and the dangers of doing so can be high. But I'll always note when it's there because when whatever that topic is ends up being wedded into um, another conclusion, uh, you can tell that there is a questionable assumption at play. So one example of this is the Arab Spring debate, where I think part of the debate uh, rested on a notion of the impact that democracy would have, like that it would have a liberalizing direction, which I didn't think was accurate. And secondly, it rested on assumptions about what the state of the jihadist movement was in the Middle East and North Africa region, which I also found to be questionable. So there were two assumptions where you could say there might have been 
a consensus on these issues or, or something of a near consensus uh, where there wasn't much debate about them, which I think underlay some of the analytic direction of the field. I think it's always worth at least making note mentally of where you think there are unexamined assumptions that result in conclusions that in turn will help to drive future uh, future analysis and future conclusions. That's a good way uh, to spot errors. Those are a couple of things I'd put my finger on. I guess the third thing I would say is try to make sure that as much as possible, you're operating outside of an echo chamber. If everyone around you agrees with you um, 90% of the time, probably you need to talk to more people. It's good to talk to people who challenge your assumptions, uh, who see the world differently. And moreover, generally when I find um, people are kind of upset with personally or have something against an individual where it's not self-evidently clear why they do, it usually, to me, speaks more poorly of the person who just has this negative view than it does of the individual themselves. I mean, there are some individuals, obviously, who are regarded as as toxic and fairly so for personality issues or other issues. But, you know, just because someone has a different idea than you doesn't mean that they're a bad person. I think that, in fact, we should be trying to surround ourselves with people with different ideas who we can talk to and learn from and challenge our own assumptions. And maybe they won't change our mind about anything, but at least we'll better understand other perspectives. Okay. Nina and David, thank you both so much for coming onto the show. Thank you for having us. Andrew, it was an absolute pleasure. And um, thanks for having us on. And moreover, thanks for introducing uh, Nina to the world. I think um, she is, has been a remarkable COO for Valens. And I, I know she's uh, someone who will make you proud to look back on this interview and uh, reflect on this being her first podcast interview. Fantastic. Very happy to have her on. Thank you.